Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Charles was known for two things, gambling and fraud. Though that wasn't always the case. In the mid-19th century, Charles worked on the docks as an engineer and inventor. One of his inventions, a device for regulating the speed of ship's propellers, sold for 5,000 francs. With his newfound fortune, Charles moved to Paris, and that's where the trouble began. He left his old life behind in favor of a new one, and along the way he discovered gambling. He became addicted to the thrill, and having a few extra francs in his pocket made it easier to get hooked. But for as much as Charles loved to play the tables, he wasn't very good at it. Eventually, the one-time investor went broke, so he turned to less-than-legal ways of feeding the monkey on his back. He convinced investors to finance a new railway he was building in Berck-sur-Mer, a commune in the north of France. Well, the railway never materialized, and when the courts demanded he answer for his deception, neither did he. He fled Paris for England, where he found new casinos to lose his money in. When it was all gone, he started another con. This time, he had the public invest in original inventions of his own design, promising huge payouts over time once they hit the market. You can probably guess what happened next. That's right, the profits that he promised never came. He led the investors on for years, with one man losing about £19,000 in the deal. That's almost $2.5 million today. And the money? All gone flushed away at any number of casinos that he'd been known to frequent. But he wasn't through. There was always another mark, one with the money to give, money that he was only happy to take off their hands and spend at the table. Charles had been well-known among the casinos in France prior to his relocation. In 1891, his travels led him to Monaco, home of the world-famous Monte Carlo Casino. This place held 100,000 francs in its daily cash reserve, also known as the bank. Anyone who happened to hit a streak and win more than that amount triggered a shutdown of all table play. Casino officials would drape a black cloth over the winner's table and then draw money out of the vault to cover the difference. This was known as breaking the bank. Upon arriving, Charles pulled up to the roulette table and placed a bet. The dealer spun the wheel and the little white ball bounced from space to space until finally landing on a number. Charles's number. He'd won. He placed another bet, and that proved to be a winner as well. For 11 hours straight, Charles sat at that roulette table and placed bet after bet, eventually accumulating a whopping 1 million francs in winnings. When he was ready to cash out, the casino draped a black cloth over the table and pulled out 900,000 francs from its vault. Charles Wells had become only the sixth person in history to break the bank at Monte Carlo. A song was written about him shortly thereafter titled The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo, immortalizing the famous fraudster for all time. No one knows how he did it, either. Given his criminal past, everyone assumed Wells had found a way to cheat. Perhaps the dealer had been in on it, rigging the wheel to give him the correct slot each time so that they could split the winnings at the end. Or maybe Wells had finally found a system that just worked. The most likely explanation was that he just happened to get lucky for the second time in his life. It didn't last long, though. 
Eventually, the authorities caught up with him and made him answer for his crimes back in England, where he served eight years in prison for fraud. When he got out, he went right back to his old conniving ways, and back to the casinos, hoping to recapture some of that glory he'd felt in Monte Carlo. But it never came. Charles Wells died at the age of 51 from kidney failure, without a single cent to his name. His winning streak was finally over. Before the days of mechanical refrigerators, we'd place a giant block of ice in a box and then store our food there to keep it fresh. Someone had to go and get that ice to deliver it to the customers. They were called icemen, and they were often farmers who worked during the winter harvesting ice from frozen lakes and rivers. They'd walk out onto a lake with at least a foot of ice on the surface and use a large handsaw to cut out the blocks. Those blocks were then stored in large buildings during warmer months so that people could still refrigerate their food in the summer. As you can imagine, it was a dangerous job. One wrong step and an ice man could be lost until spring. As a result, the men who did the work tended to be pretty tough to scare. However, in 1891, two Midwestern icemen came face to eye with something that made their blood run cold. It was early September, and Marshall McIntyre and Bill Gray of Crawfordsville, Indiana, were getting ready to deliver ice into town. As they were fastening harnesses around their horses, something appeared overhead. It was several hundred feet in the air and swirling above them. The creature measured roughly 18 feet long by 8 feet wide. It had been described by witnesses as a great white shroud that seemed to move through the air using large fins that ran along its sides. It had no head, but looked down upon the men in their barn with a large flaming eye in its center, and it made an eerie noise. As it got closer, the creature circled above the farmhouse and the barn. Bill and Marshall had no idea what it was or what it wanted, but they didn't want to risk being devoured by it. They fled to the barn and waited until it disappeared, which it eventually did. It flew toward the center of town before turning back to the farm. Bill and Marshall watched as it floated overhead for another hour until they decided enough was enough. The men darted for the ice house, mounted their horses, and departed for town. When they returned to the farm later that day, the creature was gone. The ice men gave an interview to the local paper all about their bizarre encounter, telling the reporter that they'd be carrying a rifle on their deliveries from now on in the event that the creature ever returned. The story was published later that day in the Daily Journal of Crawfordsville. A few days later, another article was published in the journal, this time featuring eyewitness testimony from townsfolk who also saw the enormous white thing squirming in the air. Its mournful screech continued, and some Crawfordsville citizens even reported feeling the creature's hot breath as it passed overhead. The story soon spread to the Indianapolis Journal, a much larger paper, before making its way across the country to outlets like the Brooklyn Eagle all the way in New York City. But even though the story captured the imaginations of people from coast to coast, the Crawfordsville monster had solidified itself as a local legend. In the ensuing weeks, the Crawfordsville postmaster received numerous letters about the creature. It seemed the whole town had monster fever. That is, until two other men, John Hornbeck and Abe Hernley, 
encountered the white wheezing shroud terrorizing the town. They followed it for several miles before discovering the truth about its origin. It wasn't a shapeless, otherworldly mass after all. It was made up of birds. Killdeer, to be exact. A gathering of birds had likely grown confused by the town's electric lights, which had recently been installed. Compounded by the damp, foggy air reducing visibility, Marshall McIntyre and Bill Gray and all the other Crawfordsville locals simply hadn't realized what they were looking at. Whoever thought up the old cliché had it right when they said, seeing is believing. But that doesn't mean we have to believe everything we read. The only thing more frightening than the Crawfordsville monster was how quickly everyone bought into the story, without doing a bit of critical thinking. Even though ice houses have faded into the past, our gullibility is as strong as ever, which might be the most chilling part of the entire story. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.